Hooves thunder across the land. Arrows pour from the heavens. Rivers of blood flow through the valleys. Columns of black smoke blanket the sky. The scourge of God has arrived. This is the quest for power. Welcome to the Quest for Power, where we are ranking and reviewing all of the European monarchs from the early Middle Ages to World War I. We are your fellow nomadic warriors on a journey for historical knowledge and ancient Roman treasures, Scott and Michael. If you last tuned in with us, our last journey was going through the Vandal Kingdom and its subsequent freefall and utter collapse. Uh, and once again, through the, uh, through the miracles of wealth and power, we, of course, had our last leader get away with uh, failure pretty nicely. Yeah, living on an estate for the rest of your life is a pretty great way to be overthrown as king. Most, most of the times your head is chopped off or placed on a spike or both. Yeah, that's, uh, well, that's that's the that's 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 uh, that's retiring. It's retiring on a loss, but it's still pretty, pretty solid retirement. A good severance package, if you will. It's good to be the king. It is. It is. So sometimes. I mean, I don't know. I like how we call it the Vandal Kingdom. I think it really should be called the Kingdom of Geyseric because I honestly, the, what did the rest of them do besides let Geyseric's kingdom fall apart? Well, you know, you always have the uh, winners and the losers of leadership. It's just that they happen to have uh, a subsequent string of losers that kind of just led to the downfall of things before the winners could really turn things around. Yeah, they didn't have like a, a Yurik figure that the Visigoths had to kind of turn things around when it was start falling a uh, when it was falling apart. I mean, the last uh, I say our previous uh, king was doing all right. I mean, yeah, he could have obviously he could have done better <laughs> but i think that he, he was a victim of circumstance almost as much as anything and yet you still wanted to burn him at the stake you you thought he wasn't good enough to be a minor lord no i mean he still kind of kind of failed i think that there is great potential in any and every single human being on this planet it's just are you in the right place in the right time and have you had the right skills, teachings, etc.? Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a nice optimistic way of looking at it. Yeah, that's a pretty I mean, cool. No one's ever truly worthless. Yeah. Sometimes you just aren't applied in the right way. Yeah, or sometimes true. it's just not your time. You know. <laughs> yeah. Try try again next lifetime. Yeah. Exactly. Like <laughs> everyone's got their potential. It's just about where you're where you're at. So. But that's why we are going to work and make the best potential of ourselves. And we are going to ask all of you to like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram at Quest for Power Pod. And you can email us at questforpowerpod at gmail.com. All these things give us, uh, I say, give us your loves, your hates, and uh, just other historical tidbit, things that you enjoy so that way we can have a little bit more of a discussion here 
with topics that you enjoy pertaining to this channel. So give us a shout. Let us know if we are mistaken something or we go way off on left field. I'm sure we could think something was one way and portray it that way. And in reality, it was an entirely different way. I'm sure with The Last King that there was some of that, but... Yeah. yeah. Well, when you have a mixed bag. Yeah. So, all right. Moving on. Yep. Moving on. Dave, it's kind of become a, a regular thing, modern history. So what have you been up to? Um. Well, I have been up to, I am thinking of getting LASIK surgery. Uh, I've had glasses since second grade and... Uh, yeah, I have a uh, son on the way, so I think dealing without headaches, uh, without contacts, not headaches, contacts would be kind of nice to just wake up and see in the middle of the night, especially if he's screaming and needs help with something. Yeah, that's a pretty good reason. <laughs> yeah, I would say, I don't think you're going to be able to go without headaches. That uh... No, no, I have a, I have a feeling that's not going to be a uh, possibility. Ibuprofen is your friend. <laughs> What have you been up to? I mean, I, I know that we uh, we did some pirating. We had like a true pirate session where um, we were taking the easy gold and running away when, when we grabbed it. Yeah, you know, we uh, say sometimes you make out like bandits uh, per the, you know, Sea of Thieves game about sea bandits or pirates. But yeah, all in all, good. And ate up a lot of my day so i'm pretty sure i could you know i said well i guess i did do other stuff i'd say i, I play a, too much dungeons and dragons uh playing as no, a no such goblin. thing as too much That's playing as a goblin it's great Ooh, playing as a goblin that would be fun yeah it's kind of nice I, it's say we uh got to play pranks on the filthy humans is this the detroit campaign where you're like medieval no, not that's medieval a... No, that's a different one. No, I'm, oh, that's okay. that's one. I, I play in three campaigns, so I play in oh. three campaigns and run one. So keep a, keep quite busy that way. <laughs> oh yeah, no, it's uh, once we're done recording this, it's uh, back to the drawing boards for uh, the campaign that I run. We might as well get on to our own campaign here on the Quest for Power, and of course, we start every campaign off with sources and writing things. So, oh wow, I am terrible. I forgot to mention who we are doing today, as you may have guessed from the title of the episode and from our saying it last week. We are doing Attila the Hun. I am excited for this one. I knew. I honestly did not know the amount of information beforehand before researching about him. I knew that he destroyed about everything in his path, but I didn't realize to the extent that he did. Yeah, I feel like, at least uh, in my experience, he's like the guy that everybody knows about, but like really doesn't know anything about. Yes, exactly. Like the name is such a well-known, it's like it's with uh, the lines of Genghis Khan. Like those two are so intertwined when it comes to big, you know, well, <laughs> uh, leaders from the steppes, so to speak, over in Asia. So, yeah. But uh, now we can get to the sources. And as you can guess, he was a Hun. And the Huns were not exactly, their priority was not writing things down. It, it really took away time from burning, pillaging, looting, enslaving, you know, the usual 
we don't we do not even know the language that the Huns spoke. They recorded their names as either Germanic, Iranian, Turkish, or this thing called Finn Ugrian. I have no idea what that is. And uh, this is the names that their outside people gave them, not really the names that they gave themselves. The origins of the Huns are also just as mysterious. The ancient writer Amanius pretty much said there was nothing to explain. The Romans really hated the Huns, so they really didn't want to give them too much of their time in terms of the sources. But he basically said, quote, The origin and the seedbed of all evils, the people of the Huns who dwell beyond the Sea of Asaph, near the frozen ocean, and are quite abnormally savage. That's a... Uh, and for those wondering, the Sea of Asaph is like northwest of the Black Sea, bordering on Ukraine and, and Russia. Mm. This is what a lot of the Roman writers thought. Again, we don't really know. There are quite a bit of nations that Rome also think they caught of out of Scandinavia. I believe the Visigoths were one and the our previous kingdom, the Vandals, were also one. But it's kind of like the birthbed of like nations. But I'm sure that that's just based on, you know, like mythology. I can't imagine that all of the, you know, the main barbarian tribes came from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you got to have an excuse. Just be yeah. like, ah, where'd they yeah. come from? Yeah. <laughs> Somewhere over there. Some, it's always cold and brutal because they're absolute savages and they are not yeah. like us civilized Romans. Yeah, because we settle where it's warm, apparently. <laughs> so all in all, the best sources we have regarding Attila is the words of his bitter rivals like the Romans. Very much like uh, Geyseric the Cruel. And without the those sources or lack of sources, we get on to the main quest. So, without further ado, I'll kneel before Attila the Hun, scourge of God, the destroyer of civilizations, king and chieftain of the Hunnic Empire. To set the tone for the episode, we have two really great quotes that flesh out Attila, the man, the warrior, the general, the king. So our first quote is from our Gothic historian Jordanes to get us started, and got, uh, Scott is going to use his wonderful mm, DM I, voice. Yeah, let's give it a crack. All right. He was a man born into the world to shake the nations, the scourge of all lands, who in some way terrified all mankind by the dreadful rumors noised abroad concerning him. He was haughty in his walk, rolling his eyes here and there so that the power of his proud spirit appeared in the movement of his body. He was indeed a lover of war, yet restrained in action, mighty in counsel, gracious to suppliants, and lenient to those who were once received on, into his protection. He was short of stature, with a broad chest and a large head. His eyes were small, and his beard thin and sprinkled with gray. He had a flat nose and a swarthy complexion showing the evidence of his origin. The, the real takeaway is the, uh, 
born into world to shake the nations. Yes, it was a great starter. And uh, yeah, yeah, Jordanes isn't accurate on too many things, but that one he is, he's dead set on. The second quote kind of gives us a little more rounded explanation of him, and it is the Roman writer Priscus uh, that fleshes out the character a little bit more. Priscus um, is really, he, I think, wrote during Attila's time, and he is considered the most, like, in terms of Roman writers, the most accurate and the most trusted. So a lot of our information will come from him. But yeah. here is his quote. I was... I was uh, well I'll say sidebar. I was surprised that he was so, um, or that Jordanes gave any mildly positive attributes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jordanes. Uh, yeah, he was actually kind of fairly nice. kind, all things considered. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah. I mean, kind of a glowing thing at that it wasn't anything like how he he, there was no insult added on like he normally likes to do it was just straight up this guy is uh and he even he kind of said like oh he you know he restrained himself despite you know wanting to to go to war with everyone so well it's probably because of his uh bias towards the people who are Aryan um christians and he had at least a fairly uh, negative I, outcome for him and as a run-in with uh, the Visigoths, right? Um, yeah, he does have a negative run-in with the Visigoths. Spoiler alert down the road. I mean, um, if you were listening in previous episodes, then you'll yeah, get that correct. tie-in. But yes. yeah, that's what I was thinking of is, you know, if you're, they're not, he done punch down on people who's uh, well already uh, losing. Yeah, but were you thinking that Attila was Aryan too, or you just said Jordanes? no? No. Oh, that, okay. No, that he had a run-in with Aryans. The Ar- say with the Aryans, Aryans won. Yeah. Therefore, it doesn't need to punch down on him. Oh, that's fair. All right. Yeah, I can see that. So, anyways, to right. the quote, he deferred from the other barbarian conquerors, entrusting to cunning more than to force. He ruled by using the heathen superstitions of his people to sanctify his majesty. His victories were prepared by the exaggerated stories of his cruelty, which perhaps he had himself originated. At last, even his Christian enemies called him the scourge of God and were so terrified by his cunning that only the Goths could save them. He neither could read nor write, but this did not detract from his intelligence. He was not a savage. He had a sense of honor and justice and proved himself more magnanimous than the Romans. He lived and dressed simply, ate and drank moderately, and left luxury to his inferiors, who loved to display their gold and silver utensils, harness and swords, and the delicate embroidery that attested the skillful fingers of their wives. Attila had many wives but scorned that mixture of monogamy and debauchery which was popular in some circles of Ravenna and Rome. His palace was a huge log house, floored and walled with planed planks, but adorned with elegantly carved or polished wood and reinforced with carpets and skins to keep out the cold. His palace sounds like the Yara longhouses in Skyrim. Yeah, well, he's just fairly modest, just, you know, 
done with uh, what you got, but you're going to make what you got as nice as possible. Yeah, I find it funny that he said that he drank, ate and drank moderately. And uh, towards the end of the episode, you're going to see why I find that kind of funny. Mm. Um, kind of interesting that he said. And also, it's interesting that he also said that like some of the stories may have been exaggerated and that he, you know, used to, you know, make his enemies, you know, flee in absolute panic before he even gets there. Yeah. And uh, I wonder if that's to uh, dumb down what he did or if it really is the truth that he really wasn't as harsh as what we are going to get into what he does, at least I mean, in terms of the stories. It's probably a mixture of both, but I mean, yeah. the pen is mightier than the sword. So, Oh, yes. There's a reason why like the pirates use the black, you know, the Jolly Roger, the, the, the flags. So that way, you know, the terror alone would get ships to surrender. I'm sure the terror alone from hearing Attila's on his way would get, you know, people to just drop everything and run. Or if, you know, the Huns are coming at them to just be in terror when they fight. Yeah. Well, now that we've gotten like a nice little description, let's get into his life. We know next to nothing about his birth, as you can imagine. We can rule out Antarctica and the Americas, though, as the birthplace and be pretty confident that he wasn't from there. Although I could see a mythology where he comes from Antarctica and I'd support that. Yeah, um, it'd be kind of fun. But that's what we know in terms of his upbringing, in terms of his origin. Uh, also, considering his reign began in 434, he we can probably guess that he was born, you know, before then. So unless he was immortal up to this point, which uh, some of the stories might s insinuate, he was born in either the late 4th or early 5th century. And despite not knowing the Hunnic language, recent historians have created his mother's names as Hungi Sung Vladi Surf. I want to know how they came up with this. Yeah, that's that's kind of a mystery. I don't know where you even begin to <laughs> search for that old documents. I don't know. Yeah, it seems like it was a little more recent too. So I wonder how they came up with that. It's just, when I was I saw that just kind of flabbergasted me. His father's name, uh, at least according to the Germanic, was Mund Zuk. And he had an older brother named Bleda, who was also known as Buddha. And not, not the, not the, not the, um. Not, not the, <laughs> not the religious kind. Yeah, not the peaceful Buddha that... His, uh, he had an uncle named Rugila, or sometimes as Rua or Ruga, and he, his uncle was king of the Huns. Alongside his brother, Attila was taught how to fight and fire a bow and arrow early in his youth. He also, we can, con was probably, um, you know, trained in cavalry since this is central to the Hunnic army. He was probably taught how to take care for horses and combat while riding them. Mm -hmm. And then um, he 
again, this is all conjecture. We don't know for sure. But he was also probably taught Latin and Gothic to be able to do business with the Romans and the Goths, which were, you know, the two big things that the Huns were dealing with at that time. And then there is no record of his uncle, the king, ever having sons to be his heir. So it is most likely that uh, Attila's father, until he died early in Attila's life, was the heir. And therefore, Attila and Bleda, when his father died early in his life, became the heirs to the Hunnic Empire. And it appears that the Huns prepared the both boys well for the position. It is likely that... They were present at war councils and negotiations, and the Huns were already a very fearsome foe before Attila showed up. So, like, it was like the stage was set for Attila to come. He didn't have to, like, he didn't have to be, like, a true self-made man. It was, he was given, you know, the, the chess pieces, and he just is going to play them correctly. Well, you know, those are usually the best kings anyways. Yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah, we, we don't, yeah, like for the um, Vandals, we don't remember Gunderic, really. We remember Geyseric. You, you know, the, you never really remember the setup kings, but, you know. Yep, yep. Um, I think Charlemagne, too, is when we get to him, is a very perfect example of his father did everything for him, and he just needed to take over and then stay, you know, essentially stand on the shoulders of giants. Yeah. Well, that's how that's how human society works. It's uh, progressive or it, it builds off of uh, your predecessors. Yeah, hopefully. Ideally. Yeah, ideally. <laughs> uh, well, King Rua died on campaign against the Eastern Romans in 433. And upon his death, Attila and his brother Bleda took over as joint rulers. This episode and next episode, we're going to get a real insight on how well joint rule works. All right. So we'll have a nice little case study on if that's even possible. Attila and his brother inherited an army, as we have been saying, that had been waging for war against their neighbors for hundreds of years now. They really enjoyed terrorizing Rome's borders. And Attila and Bleda saw no reason that this fun tradition shouldn't continue. And then they each had like their own separate regions of the Hunnic Empire, their own uh, subjects. But together, they joined up together in the great pastime of harassing the Romans. Sounds like a more successful version of um, East and West Rome. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's a great way of putting that. In 439, Attila and his brother signed the Treaty of Margus with Rome, and in the treaty, Rome had to pay the Huns 700 pounds of gold annually and <laughs> create fair trading rights. The treaty also restricted the Romans from allying with any Hunnic enemies as well as returning all Hunnic rebel refugees back to the Huns, and specifically Attila and Bleda. And in return, the Huns wouldn't kill the Romans. And they also said, well, we also won't enter treaties with enemies of Rome's. And since we own this land, we might as well defend it. So Rome had a lot of thing, had a thing going on with a lot of barbarians at this time. Basically, we're going to give you part of our empire. You just have to defend it. Oh, yeah. and when we call you... um and we need help defense, you have to fight for us on top of that. 
Yeah, that's fair enough. I mean, trying to manage all of that land is uh it's a lot of it's a lot of work. Yeah, yeah. There's a reason why governors like there's a whole bunch of governor systems always when empires are around because yeah. you know, you always need your your local municipalities, I should say. I feel like there's probably a moral here somewhere about outsourcing your army or military, but Yeah, not yeah. That that's been blamed a lot for the fall of Rome, and that is a whole. That could be an entire series of episodes on that that little statement. But this alone. ain't that show. But this is not that. The treaty was a rare win for both sides. It allowed Rome to move their troops to Sicily, where it was currently being vandalized by Geyseric. <laughs> yeah. And then the Huns turned their warlike spirit against the Sassanid Empire, and nothing really happened. Both the Huns and the Sassanians threw warriors at each other, but the borders kind of ended up pretty much the same. The Huns invaded quite a bit, and then they got pushed back. It's uh, kind of one of the only times Attila's not outright ridiculously successful up until the Battle of the Catalonian Plains. Since the Huns were driven back by the Sassanians, they were getting kind of frustrated and they wanted someone to take out their anger, bloodlust, and uh, outrage on. And luckily for them, they received reliable intel that the Roman fleet had left for Sicily. So then they seized their opportunity and invaded the Danube frontier. So, you know, they just violated a treaty. Obviously. Uh, that's pretty par for the course at this day and age. Correct, but they still played this game. Whenever you would violate a treaty, you have to give a reason why. Even if it's outright obvious what you're doing, you still gotta, for some reason, go, oh, no, 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 they violated it first. And that's exactly what they do. They claim the Romans violated the Margus 439 treaty by not returning all the Hun refugees and that a Roman bishop had made a secret trip into Hun lands, desecrated Hunnic graves, and robbed them of their grave goods. Nice. <laughs> so the Eastern Emperor at this time, Theodosius II, sent his trusted general Aspar to negotiate with the brothers. They demanded that the bishop be turned over the dem and probably face summary execution at a not very good way of going out. <laughs> uh, quick note, this is not the Theodosius during Alaric's episode. I believe this is his son, if I am correct. All the TH names. All the TH names. Attila showed Aspar the recently disturbed graves. So there was evidence that there were graves disturbed. But there By was somebody. No exactly there was no way to trace they didn't have dna ev well they had dna back then you just couldn't trace it you didn't have a way to prove the dna evidence over who you know disturbed them or what was taken from them so predictably the the roman general aspar refused to return the you know that turned the bishop over to the vengeful huns on grounds of no proof he's not like he's like you know I'm not going to turn over this guy over to, you know, be absolutely tortured to death by you just because you think he, you know, messed with a couple of your graves. It's a way to make friends with the church. 
Yes, and then he also said, oh, on your earlier thing, we have no knowledge of refugees hiding from the brothers in Roman territory. All right, Scott, I'm going to put you, well, you're not on trial, you're the judge. Are you ruling in favor of the Huns, who are the plaintiff in this case, or Aspar in the defense in this court trial? I mean, in this case, I, we know that it, do, it doesn't really matter, but I mean, we're pretty sure the Romans are probably not messing with people's graves seems like an awfully <laughs> awful lot of effort for an awfully you know small thing relatively speaking yeah i agree i would uh, if i was a roman out of it if i was aspar i'd be like you what why you know like why would they do that you know what what do we have to gain by that and then since the Romans refused to comply with the demands of the Huns, the negotiations failed. Of course. <laughs> like, just like they planned, they would. <laughs> exactly. And then Aspar sent off a message to Constantinople, letting Theodosius, you know, know of the situation. And Theodosius didn't really take Attila and Bleda seriously. And he thought, yeah, there's no real reason. They're not going to, you know... There's, there's not going to be a big invasion. We have nothing to worry about. Surprise. <laughs> exactly. Attila declared the treaty void, as he was saying pretty much earlier, for Rome not holding up their end of the bargain and mobilized for war. And in the summer of 441, Asper was on his way back to Constantinople, and the brothers invaded the Danube region, plundered and pillaged multiple cities in the province of Illyricum, which borders Adriatic Sea and is east of Italy. It's in that area by the Balkans there. Okay. They then marched onto the city of Margus, where the treaty was originally signed, and completely destroyed it. Wow. That treaty is void. <laughs> you think they made their point? That makes me wonder, like, you know, did, did, you know, did they actually believe that, you know, the Romans did this? Because that's a little aggressive. Not <laughs> that, to get too, That's a uh, statement. Not to get too tinfoil hatty here, but, like, they don't need, they only need to convince, like, the majority of, like, the Huns that this was a real thing that was done by the Romans. That is true. That is a good way of, like, making their point. Plus, like, I don't know, I'm sure that city was, like, had some valuables and stuff. Yeah, yeah, that could be. Like, coincidence is, you know, just, it's just that. Like, they can kill two birds with one stone. Yeah. Well, it turns out that our assumptions were wrong. The bishop in question did start, who and that started all of this, most likely did desecrate the graves. It's commonly accepted that he did among historians. That's hilarious. And even like... further still, later he opened up the gates to the Huns, to the city of Margus that they absolutely destroyed in order to save his own skin. Did he, did he actually survive, though? I couldn't find that. I didn't. It wasn't like really in the Attila's hunts. That would be something good to look up. That's really funny. You know, it's it's nice to know that he's the man who like single handedly just decimated, <laughs> uh, you know, an empire. <laughs> yeah, that poor city of Margus, all because of this one bishop. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was just the excuse that they needed. It, it was. 
It was. So after they laid waste to Margus, Theodosius finally decided, you know what? Yeah, the treaty is off. You, you guys, screw you. Treaty is void. And he recalled his troops from Sicily to deal with the Huns. Now, if you remember in Geyseric's episode, so Geyseric and Attila had to have lived at the same time because this is in the point where we're in episode 11 where the East and West Rome are getting together and they're going to, they're, you know, they're forming this massive army to retaliate against the Vandals and Geyseric. But then they were too busy doing the dick measuring contest and then, you know, word of the Huns were causing issues and the Danube in the East was like, all right, we're out of here. So this was this event that caused them to go that way and the reason why Geyseric didn't have to deal with them. Yeah. One of the reasons. Yeah, sometimes uh, coincidences just happen horribly. <laughs> yeah, I enjoy how our, our uh, episodes intersect. I think that's going to be a really fun thing with our podcast, especially as we get more and more deeper into it. Oh, yeah. Our... Well, it's like I said, the, um, let's say if people paid attention, then they would know how this episode ends, <laughs> relatively speaking. Yep. So Attila and Bleda Hurt got wind of, you know, the the fleet coming back and they responded with a full-scale invasion so no more just lightly pillaging you know and enslaving no they burned everything pillaged and enslaved and then wiped off roman cities all the way to t within 20 miles of constantinople good for them <laughs> Theodosius's misplaced confidence soon turned into desperation, and he asked for terms. Shocker. And since he messed around and found out, both West and East had to pay a humiliating and debilitating 800, 600, not 800, 687 kilograms of gold, which is 1,514 pounds of gold. <laughs> So yeah. that's so pretty uh, good amount for that's, uh that's a solid amount. So once they got paid, the Huns were like, all right, and then they, they returned to the Great Hungarian Plain, which was like their 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 base over in Hungary. And mm. uh all of a sudden his co-ruler Bleda just vanishes from the historical record. Wow. Kind of miss yeah, you know, just kind of interesting. Priscus, who is like one of the more reliable Roman historians, three years later, quote, said, Bleda, king of the Huns, was assassinated as a result of the plots from his brother Attila. Other scholars say that he was killed on campaign. Which one do you think is more likely? Uh, first instinct's always the assassination, but I don't know. The uh, minimal portrayal we have sounds like that they get along fairly well in the sense that they both enjoy pillaging uh, Roman territory. But maybe after they had their little like little victory shot and they came back home with uh, some more riches, they, uh, you know, had to be able to they had internal politics to focus on because when yeah. you're not focused externally, you're often focused internally. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that. Well, regardless of how it happened, Attila is now the sole leader of the Hunnic Empire and the most powerful military commander in Europe as of 445. Good for him. Yeah, yeah, nice. He little... made his dreams happen. Yeah, he's a self-made man now. 
after allegedly murdering his brother, Attila got bored and he's like, ah, I, I need something to do. You know, I'm sitting around with all my riches and my wives and it's, it's not enough. So then he decides to invade Moesia around 446. And this is, again, this is the Balka area east of Italy, um, kind of near Illyricum. And then he went on the mother of all rampages. Alaric's savage murder, enslavement, and looting looks like a few scuffles and like a minor burglary compared to Attila. Mm, that's right. That's right. He did cover a lot more turf. Well, Attila eviscerates 70 cities. Anyone who wasn't slain or was enslaved and then sent along with the stolen loot back to his base in modern-day Hungary. He did keep some people alive, though, but only those who agreed to fight for him. Yeah, it's a good model. Yeah, like like, like they said in the beginning, you know, he was nice to his supplicants. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, it's. A, I mean, it's a good model, as yeah. long as, as long as you don't have too many backstabbers amongst the, uh, the people that you're taking in. I have a feeling you would not even want to try and backstab Attila. You'd just be too afraid that he'd kick your ass. All it takes is one successful successful person. That is true. Yeah. Well, now that Attila had destroyed a good portion of the East, he started thinking. All right, I got the East down. I've got a lot of power and wealth. What else can I do? I'm I'm get my warriors. They they want to kill any, and I agree with them. Like we need we need some more killing. This is getting kind of boring. Again, we gotta find something to do. So who do you think he's gonna target next? Mm, why not just go back to Rome? <laughs> or well, or you know, take stick it to him. Which which Rome, east or west? Oh, that's a good point. I mean, east sounds like a harder target. So West. <laughs> yeah, it, yep. In a way, you're correct. In 450, he received a letter from a Roman princess um, named Honoria, who was the Western Emperor Valentinian III's sister. Kind of interesting. It's not uh, the first time we've heard of a Roman princess asking for help <laughs> and then a uh, outside a non-Roman barbarian comes in and uh, takes things a little too far. I think if I remember correctly, it was Honoria too. You know, you might you, you might be no. right. That was my first. Th- oh no, no, it was her daughter Eudoxia. Yeah. See, I remember a thing or two here. Yeah, that's right. All right. So, like mother, like daughter, I guess. I, I, maybe I'm wrong that, but I'm pretty confident she was. That had to be around that time, if I did m- rough math in my head. Give or take, yeah. In the letter, Honoria asked for his help to escape an arranged marriage to a Roman senator, and enclosed in the letter was a letter with, sorry, enclosed in the letter was her engagement ring. You have to be pretty desperate to ask for help from a man who enjoys killing people for sport. She must not have wanted that marriage at all, like, to the nth degree willing to do anything for that to get out of it addressed to Attila the Hun (laughs) somewhere on the Hungarian plains probably (laughs) yeah with a spear in someone's gut not want to be that messenger yeah 
being the chivalrous man that Attila was, he knew he had to rescue this poor damsel in distress. And he interpreted her letter and ring as a betrothal and then <laughs> sent back for his terms for the marriage for half of the entire Western Empire as part of her dowry. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's kind of a... I don't, I don't know if uh, how good his... Uh, I guess what would it be? Latin, I guess. So He probably uh, had people write it for him, but yeah, because he couldn't but, re- read or write. I mean... Someone sends you a ring in the mail <laughs> and they're like a Roman princess. Yeah, I mean, that, I feel like this isn't that much of a stretch to to, to have this uh, classic misinterpretation. Yeah, I agree with you. And historians actually say that she may not have intended anything remotely close to a marriage, but she sent her ring. Like, yeah, it's kind what, of an odd. Um, I don't know if it's like a, hey, look at this ring. This is proof that I'm telling the truth and that my, <laughs> I am in fact engaged, even though this could be any ring. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I, I would if I had a language barrier. I feel like that somewhere along the lines, I would be very confused and be like, is this, like, is this a, is this an offer for marriage? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. I want half your country. <laughs> yeah. I mean, take what you can get. Yeah. So when Valentinian found out his sister did this, he basically went to tell. I. He basically went to Attila. I'm so sorry. It's a mistake. I. I know it's a simple misunderstanding. My little sister. She mistakenly thought that she could actually choose who to marry. <laughs> she you know she can't so there's no proposal marriage there's no need to discuss a a dowry we are so sorry that she wasted your time so that's not that's not how this game works (laughs) that letter was sent it's their fate was sealed yep you're thinking along the same times of attila you went no he no 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 this marriage, this was legal proposal, and I intend to take what's mine. Prepare for some visitors in your future. I mean, it's just, it's, he's just waiting for the, the pretense, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a pretty good pretense, though. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I guess. <laughs> I feel like they're not following through on a contract therefore <laughs> their cities and fields need to be burned i don't know how ancient uh mar- marriage proposals and contracts work but uh i feel like this ain't it chief <laughs> well for some reason he does not immediately attack italy and instead in 451 he invades gaul with around 200,000 men Jordan sets the number at 500,000, but most historians agree this is a bit of an exaggeration. The ancient sources love to exaggerate how many, you know, troops were in, in you know, the, the field or battles. It is especially egregious in uh, Alexander the Great's wars. Jordan's would never exaggerate. I know. Especially because, you know, that makes him... The Goths look all the much better, you know, exactly. when they finally defeat him. So the Huns and Attila especially developed an infamy for their brutality and indiscriminate slaughter. So the mere news of Attila sent people fleeing for their lives. And here's another quote by historian Durant. 
All right, let's give this a go. All right. All Gaul was terrified. Here was no civilized warrior like Caesar, no Christian. This was the awful and hideous Hun, the Flagellum Dei, come to punish Christian and pagan alike for the enormous distance between their professions and their lives. So oh, for anyone wondering, the fel- how do you say that? Flagellum, flagellum, day. flagellum day. Flagellum day is the scourge of God. So even it's not just this title that I made up. The Romans actually called him that. I enjoy how he says Caesar was a civilized warrior when yeah. he directly caused like the Celtic Holocaust in uh, in Gaul <laughs> during well, his wars. Well, see, he he's civilized, <laughs> you know, to uh, Romans. <laughs> yeah yeah if yeah. you're if you're civilized to other people outside that's that's bad <laughs> so the biggest problem right now for rome and then the other germanic tribes in attila's path is nobody in their right mind wants to go up against him everyone wants to just hide in their castles and pray to god he doesn't go after them but he needs to stop or in their viewpoint western civilization is going to collapse yeah, well, I mean, hiding in your castle seems like a pretty good idea. It's like uh, it's like the plague. You just hide and hope it passes you <laughs> yeah, over. Just, just please go away. Please go away. Even yeah. though you know he was fine with burning cities at the drop of a hat, I don't, I don't know if your castle is going to protect you. Uh, a really hard part about fighting the Huns is it was near impossible, like flat out impossible, not even near impossible. It was impossible for anyone to set up like a actually good early alert system to notify like your generals and to get your army set up in an organized manner to be able to deal with the oncoming Hunnic onslaught. And his bloodthirsty warriors would appear out of nowhere and then they'd vanish just as quickly as they came leaving behind a mass destruction like an F5 tornado. I gotta think on how these warriors like would feel, you know? They're like, man, <laughs> just doing this all the time. They clearly had to enjoy it. I know that. I mean, I don't know. Coercion. and I mean, it's a need for survival, too. It, it's a need for survival. But remember the the era they're also gro- the, the culture they're growing up in, you know, it is completely alien culture to like the the one of our own where, you know, death is celebrated and, you know, killing and, you know, being a good, strong warrior and, you know, providing for your family by taking you know the belongings of others is celebrated in their culture versus like uh, i just think about like how we have like you know ptsd and stuff like that oh yeah i've like how how prevalent that probably was Mm -hmm. i have wondered that a lot especially in uh yeah because like this is hand-to-hand combat like Mm -hmm. that's that's personal that's... Every fight's uh, within a razor's edge of, uh, yeah, of uh, you know, death, right? Yeah, exactly. Attila advanced to Trier in Germany and then Metz in France without any resistance. When he'd go into those sit- in cities, he'd massacre the population, set the cities on fire, and then continue his path of unstoppable destruction westward. Just wonder anything ever like rebuilt yeah it's it's yeah it, it a lot of this stuff was destroyed for quite some time 
like it took them a while to rebuild. They some of them would never some of the cities would never return to their former glory, which I think we'll be getting into later. Uh Rome was starting to get quite nervous, as you can imagine. Like, he is this unstoppable force. Like, what are we going to do? And uh, they were especially nervous that he would start taking, you know, the proposal a little more seriously and start wiping off, you know, Italian cities without blinking an eye. So, you know, <laughs> quick, give him half the empire. <laughs> For some reason, Rome wasn't about that. And, and to be honest, even if they gave him half the empire and he mar- married Honoria, he would still go back for the other half. They're not dumb. I yeah. mean, they, they're not the I don't most know. intelligent. They keep trying to pay people off. Yeah, I was going to say, they're not the most intelligent, but maybe not that dumb. I don't know. Luckily for Rome, they actually, around this time, had a competent general named Aetius. And Aetius went around to, like, every kingdom, including our Visigoths. And he, uh, that wasn't allied with the Huns. And he essentially look, went, look, I get it, I get it. You hate us, we hate you, we like to kill each other a lot. I get it. But Attila's going to kill all of us if we don't band together and try and stop him. And Aetius had been studying the Hunnic warfare, and he's been racking his brain, you know, trying to figure out. Too bad he didn't have film like you know in sports back then. Yeah. On how to, on how to figure, how do you stop an unstoppable force? And you get an uh, immovable object. And the only ones up to this point were the Sassanian Empire. So I don't know if he like used something of their stuff or what what he what he took for it, but. Regardless, we get to the Battle of Catalonian Fields, and Aetius's alliance clashed with Attila's collection of defeated nations in the battle. It has been described as one of the bloodiest battles in history. Uh, we discussed this in Theodoric I's episode 5 from the viewpoint of the Visigoths, but Jack Watkins describes this battle in a much better way. And, uh, mm-hmm. so. All right. The Romans, occupying the high ground, quickly succeeded in pushing the Huns back in confusion, and Attila had to harangue them to return to the fight. During fierce hand-to-hand fighting, King Theodoric, Theodoric of the Visigoths was killed. But rather than discouraging the Visigoths, their king's death enraged them, and they fought with such spirit that the Huns were driven back to their camp as night fell. For several days, the Huns did not move from their encampment, but their archers succeeded in keeping the Romans at bay. The desertion of the frustrated Visigoths allowed Attila to withdraw his army from the battlefield and with his wagons of booty intact. The Romans did not pursue him, but his aura of invincibility had been shattered. I find it interesting in this version that we get the point of view that it it was Attila who prevented Theodoric II from taking out the Huns, as opposed to Jordan's version and how we kind of railed on Theodoric for, you know, not like going the extra mile and, you know, just take out the Huns when they're beaded down. And uh, 
gives you a little, you know, a little more perspective on the non-entity Theodoric II and understand why he didn't go after Attila. It's probably because the, you know, Jordanes forgot to mention, you know, it's because Attila was actually fending him off every time. So unlike what Jordanes would like you to believe, Attila really only, this massive battle, one of the bloodiest battles in history, it was really only a minor setback. Uh, the battle pretty much showed him, okay, I can only go this far. You know, I can't really push my boundaries too much further. Mm-hmm. These guys, you know, especially, you know, when these guys all team up against me. Well, and the, the thing is, is you just got, I mean, no one's life is infinite, but, you know, you can just wait for the infighting to start. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I wonder if that's what he's like, you know what, I'll just, I'll just come back for it later. I got, Find I got time. I got something else to do. And Rome, on the other hand, you know, they said, yep, victory, job accomplished. And then they went back home and probably praying to the almighty God and Jesus that Attila would go harass someone else. (laughs) Yeah. Since like, like, okay, we beat him. He's going to stay away, right? Right? Yeah. Well, you don't have to be, uh, you know, invincible. You just have to be hard enough to take over in comparison to the next guy. Exactly. Yep, exactly. It's like route running a bear. <laughs> you don't have to be the fastest guy. You just got to be not the slowest. Exactly. You just got to stick out your little foot when someone's running next to you when you're out running a bear. Yeah, although, I mean, you best have a really good game plan because bears run real fast. Yeah, I wouldn't advise climbing up a tree either. They're, they're quite nimble climbers they're pretty good at it they got better claws than i do yep all right scott so you're not a bear you're attila you just suffered your first defeat you can't really push further ahead without great risk um your enemies are heading home what are you doing next uh then we have something about committing i say about committing like dramatic suicide (laughs) (laughs) If I yeah. remember from the last episode, from the last time we uh, that's had what I, him. Yeah, that's what Jordanes would like you to believe. Well, darn. <laughs> so, despite his quote-unquote defeat, I mean, it re- don't get me wrong, it really was a defeat, but it was not as bad as like a lot of things try to make it out to be. Attila went. Oh, there's something in Italy. Oh, that's right. I have a wife waiting for me. I better go. I better go grab her. So, nice. so after he and his army took a long rest, D and D reference, his attacks and abilities were once again at full strength. In 452, they resumed their usual terrorizing the local populace and causing massive devastation on his way back to Italy. So you know, all things are back to normal. Systems are a go. And it is on this march that he so thoroughly destroyed the grand city of Aquileia, which is counted in numerous Roman history. It is a very prominent city. It was destroyed so bad that it was impossible at the time to recognize its original site. Wow. You know, as horrific as that sounds, it is pretty impressive to do that without the firepower of the 20th century. And he still didn't get his wife. I know. Terrible. 
And then for some reason, Attila halts his wide path of destruction at the Po River up in northern Italy. And that is as furthest as he's going to go in Italy. And nobody really knows why. But, you know, historians love to theorize things. And, you know, fans of history do as well. One theory is that during the time there was a famine that was sweeping across Italy and it is possible that he just flat out ran out of supplies needed for war. War is very costly. You need a lot mm-hmm. of supplies and you need, you know, very good logistics. And if you're just living off the land, if there's a famine, you're kind of SOL. Yeah. And then there are also reports that the plague had infested his army, which also forced him, would have forced him to abandon the plans. There possibly could be honestly a mix. Plague and famine kind of go hand in hand. That they do. And then there are some historians that think that his men cautioned against the sacking of Rome because of superstition that there was like some curse against it. Because, you know, like the previous person, Alaric I, who sacked it, died shortly after i don't know if i agree with that one i mean yes they used divination and shamans but i don't think he was that i've never gotten an inkling that he was suspicious yeah he's you know he just had a had to settle down in his old age yeah yeah his <laughs> yeah his old age i forgot how old he is at this time yeah but, uh, <laughs> Well, we don't know Probably when he's born, so we don't know. So, yeah. Well, the final and probably most, I would say, probable that there was is that there was a peace between Rome and, you know, the Huns. And Valentinian sent Pope Leo I with a delegation to seek terms with Attila. And that is true. That did happen. But the details of that meeting will forever remain a mystery till the end of time. The only thing that we know is after this meeting, Attila returned back to his stronghold in Turkey. Wow. So kind of interesting. Maybe he, yeah, he went and, you know, he went, "Ah, I'm good to retire at this point. I've, you know, I've made my wealth, done my fair share of killing. Yeah, leave it to the leave it to the youngsters. Exactly. Attila by this point had many wives. It is not known if he gave up the pursuit of Honoria, if like that was, you know, in their negotiations, if he's like, Alright, I'll relinquish, you know, my my claim on her. And uh instead in four fifty three he took an, on a new bride named Ildiko. And their wedding is had to have consisted of the standard indulgence in food and drink throughout the day, like many barbarian kings' weddings. I am sure it is a lot like the Dothraki wedding in the very first season of Game of Thrones, which I know you don't know, but... Nope. It, you know, lots of drinking, they said in a Dothraki wedding. It is, it is considered a dull affair if there aren't at least three deaths. I, I figure it'd be something a little along those lines. Yeah, probably. And Attila himself was having a great time. It's his wedding night, you know. But he drank a little too much and died by esophageal hemorrhage or alcohol poisoning at his wedding. Yeah, well, I mean, after all the years of uh, raiding and pillaging, he's probably had a lot to drink about. (laughs) 
Yes. There are some rumors that his new bride, Ildiko, assassinated him, but that is universally considered as nonsense hearsay. And uh, the one that we just discussed that, you know, he just drank himself to death was written down Priscus, who, again, we established earlier, he's the most reliable source. So that will be the quest for power, how he died, our official line. According to Priscus, his warriors cut their long hair and slashed their cheeks, quote, so that the greatest of all warriors should be mourned, not with the tears or wailing of women, but with the blood of men. He was universally loved by his warriors. This I certainly was hope so. devastating to them. The day of his funeral consisted of grief, feasting, and funeral games, which was our combination of lamentation and celebration this was a long custom in the history of the ancient world many funerals were celebrated with you know gladiatorial combat even long after the roman empire the western roman empire collapses there's still you know uh, uh celebrations of the arena yeah the night of his funeral, his body was said to have encased in three coffins, the innermost covered in gold, the second in silver, and the outer encased in iron. The gold and silver silver obviously symbolized the plunder that Attila had seized, and the iron celebrated his victories in war. And then Very much- fancy yes. and heavy. <laughs> yeah, that would be a heavy casket. You're right. Especially for this next part, according to legend, much like Alaric the first before him, and I forgot some biblical story, his casket was buried and diverted, was buried in a diverted riverbed, and then once his casket was buried, the water returned, and all involved in the burial were killed, so no one would ever find his tomb and riches within. Uh, so there's been some speculation like, oh, we found uh, Attila's casket in, uh, I think in the early 2000s, sometime after the year 2000, but then it turned out to be a hoax, as you probably could guess. I doubt we'll ever find his casket. I'm sure they Let's hit it well. start digging. Yeah. Well, that's, that's it for, uh, Attila. How long do you think he reigned? Uh, I mean, did an awful lot. I know, it's got to be like, give him like a good like eighteen years. Well, pretty darn close. He re- reigned from four thirty four to four fifty three, so around nineteen years. I'd say he made the most of it. Yeah, yeah, you could tell by the density that he he didn't reign. I mean, he reigned a long time, but you know, not like crazy. Yeah, not not like 40 years. No. Or anything like that. And uh, so, well, this is going to be a one-off episode. Um, Obviously, we will get to ranking him. But uh, this because the Huns, after this, they pretty much fizzle out. They have like a little bit of fight and kick left. But, um, you know, they kind of get taken over by other kingdoms. And at first, we were going to do his story as, like, the, you know, the first Patreon episode. But he left way too much of a big mark on Europe to not include him as part of our main questline story. So, 
uh, we got him today, and uh, it was a pretty fun one. You ready to rate him? Yeah, let's give it a go. Royal power. Pretty much said it all in the story. He destroyed everything in his path. His name alone would cause people to flee in terror. The only thing against him is the Battle of Catalonian Plains where he lost, and he didn't follow up with torturing Italy to reclaim his wife. Yeah, those are not really big deals. No. You can't win them all. No, you cannot. So, yeah. No, I'm willing to splurge and give him the big old 10. You're going to give him the 10? Yeah, you have to. I mean, he absolutely had... He could go where he wanted, pretty much. Yeah, he had free reign. and He had free reign. He acquired power well. He wielded it well. And he definitely maintained it well. Oh, yeah. All right. Infamy. You forgot to say the total. Oh, total of 20. Infamy. <laughs> <laughs> I think the highest after any monarch to come can be like a total of nine. I only can see Vlad, Vlad the Impaler and Genghis Khan being the only monarchs in the future to match his level of infamy. I mean, King Henry VIII with his six wives looks sane after him. Yeah. No. Uh, he wiped off cities. He enslaved. I'm sure he tortured. He burned everything. I, I mean... <laughs> Again, yeah, yeah, I said, whatever, every, whether everything is true or not is, uh, you know, irrelevant, but incredibly impressive. Yes. Yeah. Like I said, it's the fact that like everyone knows him but may not necessarily know everything he did is mm -hmm. pretty pretty telling. Exactly. So, so so ten. Ten as well. So twenty. Perfect score already. Religious passion. Oh, this next category he might suffer a little bit. Um if he worships some sort of god of destruction and you know the worship was sacrificing cities to a vengeful god. We'd have to give him full marks. But in all actuality, we'd know nothing about Attila's beliefs. It appears he used some sort of divination and sort of shaman holy man, but that's it. Well, that's kind of neat. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'll give him a, the whopping zero. Yeah, um, yeah, I'll have to give him a zero. I can't see passion. All right, so uh, stability. Uh, he destabilized everything around him. He reduced great cities to ash and rubble. Well, I mean, it's kind of an odd point where you talk about whether you're destabilizing others. I always felt like stability was more of an internal perspective. That is true. Yeah, like, we can, we've been taking it that way. That That's the... We don't know too much about the inner politics yeah. of the Huns. I'm willing to give them some marks. I don't know. It feels like w whether by sheer coincidence or through uh, plotting, uh, they're like his brother's demise caused him to consolidate nicely. Yeah. And like his brother, in terms of the internal record, kind of died quietly. So yeah. it's not Peaceful like Peaceful handover. It, yeah, it wasn't like a great civil war that broke out, at least in terms of what we saw. And I'm sure Rome would have loved to have said, you know, all oh, that, you know, the they were infighting and stuff like that, you know, 
and kind of paint them in a bad light. Yeah. Um, I, I think I'm willing to, to splurge on a four here just on the merit that while he made things pretty well, handled things pretty well internally, uh, war in excessive war or being your entire identity centered on war is inherently unstable. Yeah. Like did a great job of being, uh, you know, about as good as about as stable with war as you're probably going to get with your entire identity revolving around it. That is, that's true. It, again, like we said, we I, no, I didn't remember hearing anything about internal, you know, politics or anything like that. So I guess I agree. We'll give him a four. I'll match. Yeah. Kind of just have to make some grand guesses because, you know, limited knowledge. All right, so a four and a four for eight. Uh, Royal Demise. So he died partying too hard on his wedding night like a true Hunnic warrior. I still think this is one of... I think this is one of the best ways that he could have gone out. He's still at the height of his power. Yes, he did just come back from a defeat, but then, you know, he reformed and started terrorizing his way back, made some sort of deal with Rome, and then <laughs> partied too hard as a uh, retirement celebration, <laughs> if that's what yeah. he was doing. <laughs> it's, about as, it's about as favorable as you're going to get for, you know, is that, is that, I don't know how it's a I'm de, I'm like deciding how whether it's like really cool or not you know or <laughs> it's kind yeah. of fitting it's know? it's so fit like all right listeners this is one category can you let us know if you have a more inventive way that would undoubtedly make him a total five in this category because I I agree with you for some reason I don't want to give him a total five but I can't think of a better way for him to I mean, go out. Him I don't captured. even think battle would have cap you, you know captured would have meh. and then, no you, know. you get no he gets captured and just like executed like you know on the on the Senate like steps you know. Oh, like, that would have been that would have been a five. All right, all right. Yeah. I'm, then I'm I'm more happy with my four. Then I'm gonna stick with the four. Yeah, like I said, there's a certain. It depends. It's satisfying. They're satisfying in different ways. Like, yes. and it, I think it depends on who you're rooting for. If you're rooting for Attila, then the 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 partied so hard that you that you got alcohol poisoning is somewhere up there. Although, albeit somewhat sad by today's standards. Um, or if you're, you know, more of a Roman centric kind of person that you'd probably find the, uh, um, or an anti Attila kind of person, you'd probably find the capture and public execution far more satisfying. Yeah. I... You're talking like a plot wise, like if you're writing a story. Yeah, I was going to say, like, yeah, that, that's what I was thinking of. was like, all right, if I'm telling a story, how am I creating the most badass, you know, the most badass way for him to go out? And like, if the story is centered around Attila and the Huns, you know, going out partying way too hard is is the way to go. But unless he dies a martyr, I guess. But that doesn't really fit with his. I mean, yeah, but that doesn't really fit with his image at all. He's an unstoppable force. The only way an unstoppable force is defeated is by himself. An immovable object, maybe. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Anywho, uh, a four and a four for eight. All right, legacy. Uh, 
All right, so family-wise, he had many wives, but the only two ones with names I could find were Kreka and uh, his, you know, bride, Eldiko. Kreka gave him three sons named Elek, Dengzich, and Irnik, who all inherited their father's empire, and they and their, you know, offspring pretty much squandered it. He obviously wasn't very married very long with Ildiko. I'm going to guess eight hours. <laughs> I yeah. don't know. Uh, in terms of the rest of his legacy, he left many cities in ash and ruins. Some would never recover. Others would take a long time to recover after his beatdown. He was loved by all of his warriors, as I stated earlier, who were just devastated with his death. He was the true mythical character in many folklore city stories. He even had a major role in the Norse sagas, one of them being the Volsung saga, which is, if you're any knowledge of sagas, that's like one of the more famous ones. Even I, that's the only one that I know off the top of my head in terms of sagas. He has appeared in countless forms of entertainment from the day he died to even today's standard. He's a, a character, I believe, in Civilization V, as I'm sure in many war games. The Total War franchise made an entire video game around him called Total War Attila, which is a great game, if you ask me. I have sunk hundreds of hours into it. Um... Was he a character in Age of Empires? I'm not entirely aware of uh, how Age of no. Empires work. It's just the Huns. Uh, no, actually, I don't even think they're at least. Oh, I'm sorry. So I I only play four, or I have only really played four. I actually do own number two, but four has very few civilizations. There's oh, like okay. Ten now, so uh, you do have the you know the Mongols, uh, which are that's uh, that's uh, Genghis Khan. Uh, okay. So, but uh, yeah. The uh, the Huns are uh, absent, but uh, gotcha. it's so funny because I think I'm there. like, man, I'm like, where have I heard like Attila from? You know, and a lot of it is just like odd history lessons and like school. But then mm-hmm. I also think about like Night at the Museum. Oh yes, that he I love his character in that movie. That is correct. I forgot about that. Yeah, because oh. his wax figure comes to life. Yes. Oh, I love it. That he is one of my favorite characters in that one. Yeah, they He's, did a good uh, job. He's, he, he was funny in that one. So, like, like even people who actively avoid history know who Attila the Hun is. Um, and, and there's just so much. I, I You could just go into it. And it is to the point, I don't want to do this with too many characters. You can maybe disagree with me. But I think he actually breaks the scale in this category. I think I have to give him an 11 out of 10. And it's oh. very rare I want to do this. And uh, again, I let us know if you think this is dumb, but I think he breaks the scale. We'll probably give tens to others in Legacy, and it just won't come to the scale that Attila is. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if we're willing to break the rules here, I suppose uh, this is about as good of a place to do it. So are you going with 11 as well? Yeah, yeah, I'm willing to splurge here. And... Ooh, nice. So, breaking the scale for 22. Yes gives them a little more favorable numbers yes it does all right with that how many total points does he got uh he's got a total uh 78 points pretty not solid. as high as you'd expect 
No, no. I think uh, the religion kind of hurt him on that one. Yeah, pretty much. Other than that, he got near perfect marks and exceeded in some areas. So <laughs> yeah, got bo- got bonus points, extra yeah, credit, helps. if you will. It basically made up for like you know the the stability and royal demise like less than perfect. So yeah, pretty much yeah. is entirely on the backs of the the religious passion here. So. He may have broke the scale on legacy, but that doesn't mean his fate is written in stone. Should he be crowned as high king, become a minor lord at court, or be burned at the stake? Oh no, he's he gets <laughs> he gets his king today. Oh yes, we've went from zero of so many in a row being burned to great and glorious high king. Good luck telling him he's a minor lord or trying to subdue him to the stake. He probably would take that stake and burn your city. So yeah well congratulations to attila the hun he became our high king so what does he win uh he gets to be in the illustrious hall with geyseric and i believe alaric and yurik it's a fun party Alrighty. so with that that brings us a close to the mythical life of attila the hun let us know what you thought of him. Do you think he broke the legacy scale? Uh, send us your ideas if you thought uh, of a better death than what Scott and I thought for him that would make it a total 5 out of 5. Um, you can message us on Facebook or Instagram at Quest for Power or email us at questforpowerpod at gmail.com. If you would like to support what we do here, please leave a review or subscribe on whatever platform is your favorite. We will read every five-star review posted to podchaser.com, and I will throw the link in the show notes. As always, thank you for spending your valuable time with us and enjoying a little bit of history. Next time on The Quest for Power... Attila was a one-off wrecking machine. Next week, we are going to stay in the crumbling remains of the Western Empire and review Otto Wacker, the man who conquered Rome. And a little fun fact about him that ties in today's episode, his dad was a top general and close confidant of Attila the Hun. Until next time, the king is dead. Long live the king!